Hello and welcome to NewsHour. Live from the BBC World Service in London, I'm Tim Franks. Today, pity the nation, the battleground of the Middle East, the land held hostage. All titles of books about Lebanon. What chance that troubled history could have a new chapter as tensions rise between Saudi Arabia and Iran? We'll get the view of a BBC veteran in Beirut who knows better than most. Also, the commodity so prized that it convinced the Dutch 350 years ago to swap Manhattan for a tiny Indonesian island. If you managed to get a sackful, whether you stole it or actually managed to buy it from the local people, it would set you up in Europe with a fine house and probably enough money left over to um, live a a life of um, reasonable luxury. You can find out what it is in about 20 minutes. The kaleidoscope of the Middle East was given another sharp shake today. First, Saudi Arabia told its citizens in Lebanon to leave immediately. Then Kuwait, Bahrain and the UAE followed suit with their nationals in Lebanon. The move follows the sudden resignation five days ago of the Saudi-backed Lebanese Prime Minister Saad Hariri, a resignation which he announced from the Saudi capital Riyadh. Mr Hariri had been in an awkward coalition government with the Iranian-backed militant group Hezbollah. Today, Hussein Fadlallah, a member of parliament for Hezbollah, had this message for the Saudis. The Saudi regime is suffering today from an acute internal crisis. We call on Riyadh to spare Lebanon this crisis and to stop interfering in our internal affairs. We also call on them to stop their aggression and interference in neighbouring countries. Lebanon's former colonial power was France, and this evening the French president Emmanuel Macron, who's currently on a trip through the Middle East, said that he would divert to Saudi Arabia to discuss matters with the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. We'll hear more from Saudi in a moment. But first, let's look at the current risks for Lebanon in the context of that uneasy history with a journalist who's seen much of it. Jim Muir was for decades the BBC's Middle East correspondent based in Beirut, and that's where he still lives. Why is it that Lebanon is such a cockpit for other countries' grievances? Lebanon itself has always been very fragmented. It's never really held together as a state where people felt that their first allegiance was to the state rather than to their clan, family, sect or whatever. And so the people here have always been prone to being pawns in a larger game. And that goes back ages ago. I remember there's a a very good quote from a book by Freya Stark writing from here in the 1930s saying that people here are doomed to be pawns in other people's games. And that's gone on since then. Since all the time I've been here, since the mid-70s, Lebanon has been a kind of playground or a battleground for all the region's struggles. You had the Israelis coming in in 82, of course, but before that you had them getting more and more deeply involved even in the mid-70s with the Lebanese Christians. Syria, of course, deeply involved. So neighbours pitching in, but powers from further beyond. I mean, in the early 80s, you had the Americans here, the Brits, the Italians, the French. In one multinational force, you had about 30 different contingents uh, with the UN forces in the south. You had the Israelis in the south. You had Iran training revolutionary uh, revolutionary guards, uh, um, training uh, Hezbollah and so on in the Bekaa Valley. And just about everybody was involved here. And that has gone away at times, but it's always been under the surface. The politics here are basically horns on a chessboard being used by the outside powers and that continues and very very evident in, in recent events. 
And it's also been a, a game of chess, as you put it, which has seen an, an awful lot of blood shed. I mean, you talk about uh, having been in Lebanon since the mid-'70s. That was the start of an utterly ruinous civil war. Absolutely. I mean, that went on for pretty much 15 years, but through different mutations. I mean, the, the core war in 75, 76 was basically a sort of civil war, but with Palestinians deeply involved, Israelis increasingly involved, the Syrians uh, stepping in, uh, various other Arab forces uh, arriving in, in, under various guises, uh, and so on. It then, then went quiet for a bit, but uh, things were going on under the surface. It mutated and culminating in the Israeli invasion in 82, the first time an Arab capital has been besieged by the Israelis, basically in pursuit of the PLO for kind of Middle East uh, settlement purposes rather than anything strictly to do with Lebanon itself. And it's gone on in various mutations since then. And of course, the more recent kind of phenomenon has been the Sunni-Shi split, and that is being uh, really to the fore now, with, of course, the Saudis, the main champions of the Sunnis, and uh, uh, Iran, the kind of patron of the Shia. And that split has been seen all over the Middle East, and it's surfacing again here very much in Lebanon just now. And how has the current government been functioning or not functioning? How has that balance of sectarian forces been distributed? You could call it a lowest common denominator government, but uh, the fact is it was quite reassuring that there was a government because for something like two years there wasn't, at least no proper government. And this time you have, or you had, uh, Hezbollah involved in the government. It has MPs, of course. It plays an important political role as well as having a, a great big militia, the only actual militia in the country, uh, supposedly to fight Israel. So the, the government was sort of creaking along, but only on a very minimal basis. So anything important tended to get to get stuck because Hezbollah had a veto over everything, the other side also. So it took an awful lot to get any kind of real movement. But the very fact that there was some kind of collaboration going on and that people weren't fighting in the streets was quite positive. So people were greatly shaken, I think, by the really surprise uh, declaration from made from Saudi Arabia by the, the Prime Minister, Saadal Hariri, announcing his uh, resignation, which came out of the blue as far as most Lebanese were concerned. There was no real sense of crisis here before it happened. He did say that he was worried for his own safety. Of course, his father was killed. Was it 2005 he was assassinated? Correct. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I just wonder how far Lebanese people that you're talking to are, are saying that whatever lies behind Saeed Hariri's decision to resign, his concern for self-preservation was sort of understandable. Indeed, but I don't think many people take that as the real reason for his uh, resignation. There was no hint of that. He had a meeting with a very senior Iranian envoy just the day before he was pulled away by the Saudis and, and given a wrapping over the knuckles. The feeling is that uh, he was hauled in because he seemed to be having a, a reasonable chat with the, the Iranians, very senior envoy, Ali Akbar Veliati, with very laudatory statements coming out from Mr Hariri's office afterwards. So the general impression is he was pulled in and basically forced to resign by his Saudi sponsors, um, uh, which makes people very worried that uh, the country could become once again, a battlefield for the power struggle between Iran and uh, Saudi Arabia. And, of course, with the, always the horrible potential for Israeli involvement. I mean, the Saudis are very close with Mr. Trump, it seems. Mr. Trump is very close to Mr. Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister. So it doesn't take a huge leap of imagination in a conspiracy-riddled region to see something cooked up whereby Hezbollah is isolated on the Lebanese arena and then the Israelis moving in to wreak destruction because uh, the Israeli ministers have made it very clear 
if they go to war again in Lebanon, they will do huge damage. And this has caused huge jitters here in Lebanon. And, I mean, that is something that is palpable, is it? Yes, I mean, everybody you talk to is saying, what's going on? Why is this happening? They're bewildered because we've never had a prime minister just suddenly resigning for no apparent reason. So people are deeply worried. And with all these uh, elements going on, the Syrian war still continuing, Israel in the south with a lot of uh, war fever noises coming out of there, I don't think there's any sense that Saudi jets are going to come flashing out of the sky tomorrow morning. But people are very nervous and very worried. That was Jim Muir, who reported on the Middle East for the BBC for uh, more than 30 years. He was speaking to me from the Lebanese capital, Beirut. It's also been a tumultuous week inside Saudi Arabia. Today, the Attorney General said that at least $100 billion had been lost through systemic corruption and embezzlement in recent decades. Sheikh Saad al-Mojeb also said that more than 200 people, some apparently very high-ranking, were being held for questioning as part of a sweeping anti-corruption drive that began on Saturday night at the behest of the 32-year-old Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Critics of MBS, as he's known, worry that too much power is becoming concentrated in his hands. So what do his contemporaries, young Saudis, make of him and his fast-paced approach? Our Middle East correspondent, Yolan Nell, has been finding out. Saudi Arabia remains rigidly conservative, but it's striving to be modern. Its young population is restless for reform. Six in ten Saudis are aged under 30. So what do they think of the latest dramatic changes being ordered by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman? The sense that I got from my Saudi friends and the Saudi public sphere as well, which, you know, you can tap into on Twitter, there was elation. Ali Shaban from Riyadh is studying in Washington, D.C., but he's enthusiastically following what's going on back home. The people that have been arrested have always been deemed to be untouchable. And so this sends a message that that is over and that no one is untouchable and there will be no tolerance anymore for corruption and waste uh, in the economy. Since his rapid rise to power, the Crown Prince has been promoting his new Saudi Vision 2030. He has plans to diversify the oil-reliant economy, build a megacity in the desert and fight corruption. Many Saudis, resentful of how much of the country's wealth has long remained in the hands of the royals and their close associates, see this positively, including these shoppers in Riyadh. The beautiful part of it is that now no one will dare to repeat the bad things that have been done before. It will create a better future free from the impurities and evils that hinder our beloved country. But you don't have to look for long online before you find dissenting Saudi voices. A satirical cartoon suggests Mohammed bin Salman is just consolidating his own power, laughing as he locks his royal cousins in a cage. And this video shows an insect repellent being used against him, suggesting it's his behaviour that needs to be cleaned up. With many critics detained, Saudi social media activists are careful about giving away their identities. On a messaging service, I chat to Mujdahid about the crown prince. His replies are voiced by an actor. This is no fight for corruption. He is the most corrupt. The educated, politically conscious people are eager for power sharing, accountability, 
freedom, and other real political reforms. He is doing the opposite, reducing freedom and throwing all reformers in jail. The young are looking for jobs and housing, but this will lead to a huge increase in unemployment. Businessmen are very worried because of his erratic policies. Recent days have seen many other changes in Saudi Arabia, including in its conservative culture. A loosening of tight restrictions on women allows some to join the audience at this extreme sports show for the first time. But while many young Saudis are applauding such steps, for now, the direction the country is taking looks very uncertain. Yola now reporting on what the young of Saudi Arabia make about the big changes in their country. This is NewsHour. Coming up on the programme, we'll hear what an Obama-era US ambassador in Beijing makes of President Trump's visit. Well, he clearly has changed his rhetoric and uh, has not imposed all the sanctions that he promised when he ran for president. He's not labeled China a currency manipulator, which China is not. And he's not slapped tariffs and duties on all Chinese goods coming into America, some 45 to 50 percent, as he first promised. That's quite frankly a good thing. But is it an unalloyed good thing? We'll hear what Gary Locke has to say in 15 minutes. Our headlines this hour, as we've been hearing, the Saudi authorities who are leading an anti-corruption drive say that $100 billion has been embezzled from the country. And Twitter is suspending its authentication system after it verified the account of a white supremacist. You're listening to NewsHour, live from the BBC, with me, Tim Franks. It was a move deployed by the old Soviet Union to airbrush from photographs those who had fallen from grace, to purge them from the visual archives. Now a Hollywood film has done pretty much the same with the actor Kevin Spacey, against whom there's a growing number of allegations of sexual misbehaviour. Spacey's role in the movie All the Money in the World is to be recast and reshot, and all in time for the scheduled release in six weeks. Here's a clip from the trailer without Kevin Spacey. To be a Getty is an extraordinary thing. How much would you pay to release your grandson if not $17 million? Nothing. Simran Hans is film critic for the Observer newspaper. What does she make of the studio's decision to remove Kevin Spacey from the picture? I think it's quite interesting, but I have to say I think it's a kind of cynical move on their part. I mean, maybe if they were in the middle of production, they're still shooting, um, there are vulnerable people on set who might be affected by Kevin Spacey's presence, then perhaps I could understand it why they would choose to kind of recast him. But the fact that it's happening after the film has been shot, for them to do this now, right after all of the Harvey Weinstein scandal stuff and, you know, with, with all this stuff around Kevin Spacey as well, it just seems like uh, a move to capitalise on the sort of water cooler moment 
In other words, we're talking about it. Exactly. And, uh, and you know, a film that I think, you know, is a prestige film, people would probably go and see it. It looks quite Oscar-baity. But honestly, I think this film could have slipped under the radar. And now that they have recast Kevin Spacey and, and replaced him with Christopher Plummer, people will go and see it. People will be looking for the joins in the film. They're going to be looking to see where he's been cut out. Um, and it's much more of an event. And I think that benefits Sony. I guess you could also argue, though, that Sony, I mean, it's a big company, it is a brand, they don't want to be associated with somebody who is under a cloud. Yeah, and I guess um, there is something quite interesting about that, that we're in a cultural moment when you, uh, you know, it's not so acceptable to be associated with people who are sort of seedy or abusive or whatever what to whatever degree you want to call it isn't that positive though yeah i I think it i think overall it's positive i think moving forward if companies are more ethical and and more considered about who they're hiring and um you know what kind of people they are of course that's a good thing and that can only make the industry safer and fairer but i'm just not convinced that doing this to sort of make themselves look good is is sort of an ethical decision i think it's a branding decision That was Simran Hans, film critic for The Observer. It was a land swap like few others. 350 years ago, the Dutch gave Britain a swampy tract of land called Manhattan in return for a tiny spice island in Indonesia. Now, for the first time, that island is commemorating the anniversary of the treaty with a Manhattan festival. Rebecca Henschke travelled to the remote Banda Islands for the event. I'm on a wooden Bengingsi boat, a huge wooden sailing boat coming through a strait. On one side is an active volcano covered in thick jungle and coconut trees down below. And we're being brought in by two canoe boats filled with around 20 local men crying out the normal welcome, coming into the Banda Islands and the Pulau Run for a festival to mark the time when this island changed the world. With the Treaty of Breda in 1667, the Dutch gave Manhattan to the British in return for the island of Rune, here in the Banda Sea. It turned out to be one of the best historical swaps for the British and then America. But at the time, it was a better deal for the Dutch says David Perry, a collector of antique maps from that time. It seems like a, a, a bad deal when we think about it now and how valuable Manhattan is, but actually at the time it was a very good deal for the Dutch. They were not doing anything really in Manhattan and yet they desperately needed the Isle of Run to complete their monopoly, their hold over the source of nutmeg, the only source in the world of nutmeg. Traded for centuries by Arab and Chinese merchants, Nutmeg became a coveted luxury in 17th century Europe. It was used to preserve food and believed by some to prevent the plague. Well, it was actually more valuable than gold, sort of weight for weight. And if you managed to get a sackful, whether you stole it or actually managed to buy it from the local people, um, it would set you up in Europe with a fine house and probably enough money left over to um, live a, a life of um, reasonable luxury. And the Banda Islands were the only place in the world where nutmeg grew. The Bundanese, though, paid a high price, 
the Dutch brutally enforcing their monopoly over the trade. As local business leader Abu Riza explains. In order to control these islands, the Dutch generals said we have to change the mindset of the people. They massacred, basically exterminated the indigenous people. Almost half the population were slaughtered. The rest fled and the others were taken to the other islands as slaves. The dance that I'm watching now represents the murder of the noble people, the Bandanese, and most of the population. At one point, the dancer putting a white flower in his mouth, symbolizing the fact that they were silenced. Nutmeg is still farmed here in the fertile volcanic soil. Ponky is the 13th generation in his family to run their plantation, one of the oldest here. He says he's proud to continue the tradition of his ancestors, even though he gets just $8 for a kilogram of nutmeg. Things are much quieter these days on Pulau Run. We're off the coast now on a boat, and a pod of dolphins has just swum past, leaping out through the crystal blue water. There's electricity just a few hours a day on the island, but the locals are hopeful that this festival will once again bring the eyes of the world back to these incredible islands and the unique role they played in history. Tania Awe, chair of the Bunda Heritage Foundation, says they have what New York doesn't. I think Banda is richer. We still have marine megabiodiversity. And New York is just a concrete jungle. But still, I wouldn't mind an apartment on Central Park. <laughs> I had to pay $20 in a taxi for a three-minute ride on Manhattan. <laughs> I was like counting. Some amazing voices uh, from uh, that piece by Rebecca Henschke reporting from the Banda Islands in Indonesia, a piece that, uh, I have to say, was nothing short of utterly charming. Uh, there's more on uh, the Banda Islands. If you head to our website, bbc.com, and uh, look for the travel pages, you'll uh, find a, a feature about the Banda Islands and about that remarkable land swap that was made by the Dutch 350 years ago. And just to bring you up to date on the story we were leading on, which is uh, the ructions in Saudi Arabia and what it has to do with uh, Lebanon. President Macron, who's in uh, Saudi this evening, our correspondent is travelling with him, says uh, that he has had informal contact with the uh, uh, Lebanese former Lebanese Prime Minister, Saad Hariri, but there's been no official request for him to travel to France. And uh, talking about the missile fired from Yemen into Saudi Arabia on Saturday, President Macron said it was clearly... Iranian made. You're listening to News Hour. Next on News Hour, we'll be catching up with President Trump in China. First, we'll head to The Hague, where the International Criminal Court has authorised prosecutors to open a full investigation into alleged crimes against humanity in Burundi. Judges said there was a reasonable basis to investigate offences allegedly committed by government and government linked groups. Fadi El Abdallah is a spokesman for the ICC. Crimes under the IC jurisdiction appears to have been committed, such as murder and attempt murder, imprisonment or severe deprivation of liberty, torture, rape, 
enforce disappearance and persecution. One big potential problem is, of course, that Burundi has now withdrawn from the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. So even if you were to want to pursue this, even if it ends up that the prosecutors believe that they have a, a case for people in Burundi to answer, no one's going to stand trial, are they? Well, the withdrawal of Burundi first does not affect the jurisdiction of the court over the crimes committed when Burundi was still a state party, and second, does not affect the Burundi obligation to cooperate with the ICC regarding this case and subsequent potential cases, because this is part of what Burundi accepted when it ratified the Rome Statute. Yeah, In I, under- case of I understand. That, I understand yes, that that's the yeah, theory, yes. Fadi. But I yes. mean, we've had just today a, a Burundian government spokesman, Philippe. Nzobonariba saying they, i.e. the ICC, can do whatever they want, they can take all the initiatives they want, Burundi will not cooperate because we stop collaboration. Well, the ICC is uh, a court that prosecutes individuals. So in cases of states' non-cooperation, what the ICC can do is actually inform the Assembly of State Parties to the Rome Statute that there is a state that is not honoring their obligation towards the ICC, then it would be in this eventuality for the Assembly of State Parties to decide what would be the appropriate measure in response to a non-cooperation. You will also be aware that the reaction in Burundi has been, uh, and again I quote from a presidential advisor in the country, as usual, the ICC plunges into outrageous lies to implement Westerners' hidden agenda to destabilise Africa. I mean, that's not a view of the partiality of the ICC that is limited to Burundi. A lot of people in Africa do think that the ICC has double standards when it comes to Africa. A lot of people in uh, Africa have asked the ICC to open investigations, such as the governments of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Mali, Gabon, Uganda, and Central African uh, Republic uh, twice. So I think the matter that is important for the court is to conduct its own activities, proceedings that are fair, that respects the rights of the victims and the rights of the defense, and are conducted in a completely objective and independent way. Fadi Al-Abdallah, spokesman for the ICC, and if you tune into News Hour tomorrow, we, uh, we're hoping to get more reaction to that story from Burundi's ambassador in London. This is News Hour, live from the BBC in London with me, Tim Franks. China has, for the last two days, launched an offensive a charm offensive, and the operation seems to have been highly successful. The target was, to all appearances, deeply charmed. President Trump has spent two days in Beijing in the company of his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping, and late in the evening, China time, at real Donald Trump, tweeted this video. Our relationship with you and China is a very important one to me and to all of the people of our country. The United States, working with China and other regional partners, has an incredible opportunity to advance the cause of peace, security, and prosperity all across the world. How the rhetoric has changed. I was at a rally last year when candidate Trump announced... We can't continue to allow 
China to rape our country, and that's what they're doing. Donald Trump speaking during the presidential election campaign in 2016. So how big is today's announcement in Beijing of $250 billion worth of US-China trade deals? How big a correction is it to that perceived imbalance and China's enormous trade surplus with the United States, for which Mr Trump has blamed previous American administrations? Gary Locke was from the last administration. He was the US ambassador in Beijing between 2011 and 2014. It's always good when American companies are able to sell their made-in-USA goods and services to any uh, country and to companies in other countries because it means jobs for the American people. Anytime we export more, uh, American companies have to produce more. That means they need more workers, and that means jobs. Uh, a lot of these were already in the works, uh, some already consummated or signed uh, several months or even a year ago, and so uh, they're packaged together to uh, provide more visibility and pomp and circumstance to these uh, trade missions. This is normal with every presidential visit to any country, whether it's Democratic or Republican president. The real key is whether or not the president and the administration can get the Chinese to open up many sectors of the economy that are now off limits to foreign investment, including American investment. There's huge restrictions, and uh, where U.S. companies are allowed to operate, uh, in many cases, they can only do so with a partner, and the U.S. or the foreign interest has to be less than a 50% share. In many other cases, the Chinese are requiring that foreign companies have to divulge their trade secrets, their intellectual property, their source codes, as a condition of doing business in the technology sectors of China. That is very, very intimidating and can actually result in intellectual property being being shared with the Chinese competitors. And so those are the big, big issues that the administration needs to focus on. And those sorts of things that you just talk about happen without a quid pro quo when Chinese companies come into American markets. Why has it been so unequal? China has always been a closed market. And when they joined the WTO, they made a lot of assurances and promises to open up their markets. Uh, They've been slow to do that. And many countries around the world have complained about that uh, and have been pushing China to live up to their commitments. That's why you're seeing actions from many other countries around the world, including the United States, getting tougher, almost saying that uh, they're going to start restricting their markets unless the Chinese uh, play by the same rules. Just looking at the numbers, quite apart from the rules, when President Obama came into office, the trade deficit rose year on year from about $200 billion up to $350 billion by the time he he left office. Well, actually, it's a lot more complicated because you also now have the changing nature of the global economy where many things that are actually produced in other countries but are now assembled in China – count as being a product coming from China. But nonetheless, the point is that we do have a growing trade deficit with China, although exports from America uh, during the Obama administration rose by almost double because the Chinese are growing in their economy with a growing middle class, a higher demand by the middle class for high quality products, brand names, uh, many of them American. And there's a love affair, quite frankly, with American products. I'm just wondering what you make of President Trump's clear change in rhetoric. I mean, he came into office saying he was going to be enormously tough on China. 
from his visit today, and it hasn't come out of nowhere, he's suggested that he's full of admiration for China and its leader. It doesn't sound as if he's spoiling for a fight with China. Well, he clearly has changed his rhetoric and uh, has not imposed all the sanctions that he promised when he ran for president. He's not labeled China a currency manipulator, which China is not, according to most world economists. And he's not slapped tariffs and duties on all Chinese goods coming into America, some 45 to 50 percent, as he first promised. That's quite frankly a good thing. Uh, because the Chinese simply would have retaliated and imposed huge tariffs on all American goods going into China, and American companies would have lost business, and uh, we would have lost a lot of American jobs. In a trade war, nobody wins. You lose jobs on both sides, and ultimately the consumers lose. So I'm glad that he has not followed through. I was taken by something written today by John Pomfret, former Washington Post bureau chief in Beijing, saying, uh, many of my colleagues, even those from the Democratic Party, are in complete agreement with Trump's former aide, Stephen Bannon, that the United States is in an economic war with China and that Americans have done far too much to facilitate China's rise. Perhaps you and others are deluding yourself. Well, no, I I agree that we need to have stronger actions against China, that we need to hold them to account and that we need to uh, ensure that they play by the rules and that, if necessary, we also restrict their access to U.S. markets. There has to be fairness. There has to be reciprocity. And I believe that uh, if the Chinese aren't going to open up certain sectors of their markets to foreign companies, then we should restrict their access to some of our markets. So I I think we need to do it on a case-by-case, sector-by-sector basis and look at it very strategically and very seriously. Gary Locke, the U.S. ambassador in Beijing between 2011 and 2014. And uh, if you want a little bit more about China, um, do head to the BBC NewsHour website and you can catch up on my reports from uh, the trip I just had to China for the 19th Communist Party Congress. The huge release of sensitive financial data known as the Paradise Papers has been making headlines all week. So far, much of the coverage has been focused on how offshore tax havens affect the lives of the super-rich. It could be argued, though, that their biggest impact is on the super-poor. And the BBC has uncovered evidence of how multinational companies are able to shift their profits out of developing countries. The IMF estimates that the practice costs the developing world about $200 billion a year. David Grossman reports from Namibia. I'm driving towards one of the schools now, and when it's beginning of the year and they have to apply for, for schooling for the grade 1s, they sometimes have to come and sleep in front of the school to ensure place for the kids for the next year. So, I mean, Namibia desperately needs tax, tax revenues to spend on things like schools. For sure. That's for sure. I'm driving round Wolvis Bay in Namibia, and the town is crowded with fish workers. The shifts are changing, and the industry has never been busier. And yet, it's clear the town's infrastructure is struggling to cope with all the people working here. We'll call my guide Avram. It's not his real name. He's a middle manager in a fish plant. This is a small community, and he fears repercussions if he speaks out. I think whatever money is made is leaving our country. You, you sense that? Yes, for sure. It's not staying in Namibia. I don't think there is tax being paid to our government. Otherwise, they would be able to provide us with the necessary uh, basic 
Thanks to the leak of sensitive financial data from the major offshore law firm Appleby, we can see how money is taken out of Africa. For example, we found a management agreement for a firm called Atlantic Pacific Fishing. It's a joint venture between the huge Chinese company, Pacific Andes, and a group of Namibian shareholders. But according to the management agreement, the joint venture is being managed not here in Namibia, but 4,000 kilometres away in the tiny tax haven of Mauritius. So the office is somewhere off this street in Port Louis, Mauritius. Rather helpfully, the management agreement had an address on it, so we decided to find it. The ground floor of this building has lots of different types of companies, but none that I could see involved fishing. What we found were the offices of the law firm Appleby, which means the company managing the fishing operation is a letterbox company with no real substance. It's just a postal address. Why would the Chinese parent company want to manage its Namibian fishing operation from a letterbox company in Mauritius? It's because Mauritius sits on a network of delicious double taxation treaties. The aim of a double taxation treaty, if you ask a business, is to prevent companies paying tax twice if they operate in two countries. So in this case, to prevent them paying tax both in Mauritius and in Namibia. Martin Hearson is a fellow at the London School of Economics and has been looking into the negative impact of double taxation agreements on the developing world. We asked him to look at our documents. He told us that what's likely to be happening here is a practice called treaty shopping. It's where you base your operation, in this case by using a letterbox company, wherever you can get the lowest tax rate and use the network of double taxation treaties to get your profits here. Basing your fishing management company here means it can enjoy the ultra-low tax rate of 3%. It's all rather complex, but the effect is simple. In just two years, the parent company in China made a saving of 6 million Namibian dollars in tax by using this Mauritius entity. Our double taxation agreements that we have entered into are not equitable for us. I think they are, they are skewed in favour of those countries that invest here. And we are in the middle of the process of renegotiating all our double taxation agreements. Namibia signed its agreement with Mauritius over 20 years ago, but they've had enough. Although fishing, mining and agriculture account for nearly two-thirds of the Namibian economy, these sectors only contribute around 13% of the tax take. It's a huge disparity. The Namibian finance minister, Carl Shetwine, is clear. The blame lies with foreign multinational companies shifting profits out of the country. It is absolutely untenable that we continue year in, year out, giving resources away, see wealth built up in countries where the investors come from, but where the resource comes from, there is perpetual poverty and a very little, small return from these natural resources. Pacific Andes deny there's been any abuse of the tax treaty. The law firm Appleby didn't comment on this case, but say they advise clients on legitimate and lawful ways to conduct their business. But developing countries face a huge task to renegotiate their tax treaties, and they cannot hope to match the armies of expensive lawyers that multinationals and tax havens can deploy. Meanwhile, back in Wolvis Bay, there's widespread disillusion. A belief that nothing will change. Avram makes his feelings clear. Can I, can I say in my words? Yeah. Pissed off totally pissed off because I feel I want to leave my country which I uh, I love you want to leave? yes I want to leave because I can't see a future for my kids here anymore really? yes 
That's that's sad. Isn't it sad? Yes, it is. A report from Namibia by David Graceman, and you can hear more about that country's missing millions by going to the assignment page on the BBC World Service website. You're listening to NewsHour. A reminder of our top story. Amid rising tensions, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Bahrain and the UAE have told their citizens to leave Lebanon immediately. The BBC's former Middle East correspondent Jim Muir, who's based in the Lebanese capital Beirut, told NewsHour that people there are very concerned about recent developments. We've never had a prime minister just suddenly resigning for no apparent reason. So people are deeply worried. And with all these uh, elements going on, the Syrian war still continuing, Israel in the south with a lot of uh, war fever noises coming out of there, I don't think there's any sense that Saudi jets are going to come flashing out of the sky tomorrow morning. But people are very nervous and very worried. One other headline story, and it is also to do with Saudi Arabia. The authorities there, who are leading an anti-corruption drive, say that $100 billion has been embezzled from the country. This is the BBC World Service, and live from London, you're listening to NewsHour. The United Nations says it's the world's fastest-growing refugee crisis. More than half a million Rohingya Muslims have fled Myanmar's western Rakhine state into neighbouring Bangladesh since the Burmese military launched a campaign in Rakhine in August. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees has told the BBC that it will be a long time before it's safe enough for those refugees to return. But in the meantime, life is precarious for the Rohingya, as the BBC's Nomia Iqbal reports from Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh. It's just approaching nine o'clock in the evening here in the city of Cox's Bazaar. And just to paint a picture of what this city is, it's essentially a tourist place. It's got long sandy beaches, high-rise hotels... It's where middle-class Bangladeshis come for their holiday. And just a few miles down the road, in contrast, is where a huge refugee crisis is happening. There are 12 large camps for Rohingya refugees in the Green Hills close to the border. And I've spent the last few days hearing from Rohingya Muslims who live in the small makeshift tents there. More than half a million of them have fled from northern Rakhine state after Myanmar's military-led operation, and they continue to leave. But aid agencies are worried that women and children who arrive in Bangladesh are now facing a new danger of being trafficked out of the camps. They want more protection put in place. I met one young woman who recently arrived and was forced into prostitution here in Cox's Bazaar. 21-year-old Halima fled northern Rakhine state three months ago across the border into Bangladesh... And she told me how her nightmare got worse after she was offered accommodation with a local man. Just a warning, you may find some parts of this report distressing to hear. In this house, I was dolled up. They brought men and I had to sleep with them. Sometimes three to four people used to come in one night. It was so difficult and sometimes I started bleeding. Then... One day, a man, I heard he's a police from Bangladesh. He came. I told him what happened to me. One night, a man came for having sex with me. I asked him if I could call to my parents because I was missing them. So he gave me his mobile phone, and I called that police man on his number. 
I told him that they're beating me and I'm bleeding. So this guy told me that he would come with his forces and don't worry. So in the midnight, the police came with six other polices, rescued me with other girls. He told me that you are free now. So as I don't know any place in Bangladesh, I came here in Cox's Bazaar again. As I have no any source of income, I have no choice but being a prostitute. That's 21-year-old Halima speaking to me about her experiences. Rohingyas like her are denied citizenship and equal opportunities by the Myanmar government, which says they are illegal immigrants from Bangladesh. I've been speaking to Filippo Grandi, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. I asked him how worried is he about the current situation. Very. I'm worried about two sets of risk. One is uh, exploitation, including sexual exploitation. When people are come with nothing, they're extremely vulnerable to this type of uh, protection risks. So we are focusing with specific activities, personnel, on these aspects. The other feature of this particular crisis that struck me immensely when I was there is the intensity and level of trauma that people carry with them. They've witnessed terrible violence, especially children that have seen parents killed in front of their eyes, women that have been raped or that have suffered attempted rape and severe wounds. I found, for example, people to be very passive, not to have strong reaction, almost numb to pain. And this is really an indication of severe trauma, which will take a long time to be healed. That's Filippo Grandi, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. Now, not everyone makes that decision to leave northern Rakhine. There are those Rohingyas who stay behind. It's extremely difficult to get into the area, but we managed to speak to one man whose home and village of Miutuji was burnt down in August, forcing him and his mother to seek refuge in a friend's house in a neighbouring area. For his own safety, we're not naming him. I went to a village market today to buy some fish for me and my mother. We don't dare to go outside of the village because uh, we fear that army soldiers and Rakhines might harm us. I feel lucky that some people uh, from the Hindu community are still selling food to us. Buddhists don't sell anything to us and uh, many local Rakhines have stopped selling to us too. They are scared of Buddhist nationalists. A few weeks ago, there was an incident in Mimya Township. A Rakhine lady sold food to the Rohingyas. Local Buddhists saw it. They paraded her in the street with a placard hung around her neck. On the placard, it says in Burmese, I'm a betrayer to my people. That's a Rohingya Muslim who is still in northern Rakhine, the area most affected. There are 53 million people who live in Myanmar. 4.5% are believed to be Muslims, but not all are Rohingyas. So what impact is this crisis having on the wider Muslim community in Myanmar? I spoke to Kin Mong Chow. He's a lawyer and respected Muslim figure in the country's largest city, Yangon. He told me that anti-Muslim sentiment has become really serious since 2012 when a wave of clashes primarily between ethnic Rakhine Buddhists and Rohingya Muslims took place. Currently, we are very concerned about the next turn of the violence. Myanmar Muslims are also becoming the targets of the nationalists because of the hate speech. Do you feel safe 
as a Muslim in Myanmar? No, we are not safe. We'd like to uh, request the government of Myanmar to provide us effective protections to prevent the criminal forces, assaults, provocations and destruction of mocks. Who in government do you think can do this for you, though? Who do you, who do you trust to help you? Uh, Dr. Aung San Suu Kyi, state councillor, have very uh, little power. But generally, Dr. Aung San Suu Kyi is our last hope. So I would like her to be a politician and activist at the same time. That's Kinmang Chow, a Muslim lawyer in Myanmar's second city of Yangon. And that was the BBC's Nomia Iqbal reporting from Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh. It's been a pretty wide-ranging uh, programme geographically with our correspondents spread all over the place. We've heard from uh, them in Beirut, in uh, from Saudi Arabia, albeit indirectly, uh, from the Banda Islands, from Cox's Bazaar. Uh, and so it goes on. We're very proud of it here on the BBC World Service. Hope you can keep tuned into us uh, for more news. And uh, that's it from this edition of NewsHour. From me, Tim Franks, and the rest of the team here in London, thanks for listening. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.